In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Heavenly Father, we, we praise you, and we thank you for this great opportunity to come before you. And we ask you for the gift of the Holy Spirit, that we might dive into your revelation, dive into your teaching, that you might reveal it to us. That you will give me the grace of your words, not for my glory, but for your glory alone. And so we ask you for all of this. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. The Sacrament of Marriage. The Catechism of the Catholic Church in paragraph 1601 says, The matrimonial covenant by which a man and a woman establish between themselves a partnership of the whole of life is by its nature ordered toward the good of the spouses and the procreation and education of offspring. This covenant between baptized persons has been raised by Christ the Lord to the dignity of the sacrament. At the dawn of time, salvation history begins in the book of Genesis with a marriage on the seventh day of creation. It just so happens that at the other end of salvation history, in Revelation 19, we find ourselves on yet another seventh day, another Sabbath another garden experience with yet another marriage. It's the wedding feast of the Lamb. So the entire divine revelation, the story of salvation history, the Bible, is bookended by the story of marriage, its dignity, and what it truly is in the eyes of God Himself, and what it means to us as persons. Everything in between is about God forming His people preparing them, washing them clean, as he says, preparing them to be the spotless bride presented to the spouse, which is Jesus Christ, at that wedding feast of the Lamb. So marriage is a central theme throughout salvation history. It is that important. It is that foundational to mankind itself. It is the bedrock of all society. Every single culture, anywhere in the world, its bedrock, its fundamental aspect is marriage between one man and one woman. Has been from the dawn of time, no matter how far you go back, no matter what historical record you pull out. Now, having said that, mankind has not ceased from monkeying around with marriage along the way. We've seen polygamy, we've seen abuse, we've seen divorce, we've seen all kinds of problems come and go in mankind's history. But the fundamental bedrock is man and woman, and an indissoluble marriage. That is society's great benefit. It has enjoyed this benefit, as I said, for all time. Paragraph 1605 of the Catechism of the Catholic Church says, Holy Scripture affirms that man and woman were created for one another. It is not good that man should be alone, the woman flesh of his flesh, his equal, his nearest in all things, is given to him by God as a helpmate. She thus represents God from whom comes our help. Therefore a man leaves his father and his mother and cleaves to his wife, and they become one flesh. The Lord himself shows that this signifies an unbreakable union of their two lives by recalling what the plan of the Creator had been in the beginning. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. And that's quoting from Genesis chapter 2. We see in 1 John chapter 4, 8, 
that God is love. Think about that for a moment. Think about what you understand love to be. Think about what you think the world understands love to be. And then ponder this verse. God is love. I think we have to admit that the world's understanding of love is nothing close to what love really is. And that should utterly take us back. It should give us pause. It should give us a moment to say, wow, I better rethink this. I better discern this. I better pray about this because love is at the heart of your relationship with other human beings, whether that's in a marriage or in a friendship or any other kind of relationship. Why? Because God is love. In Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 and 28, we read the following. God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness. He goes on to say in verse 27, So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. He goes on to say, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. So this is Genesis chapter 1. God creates man and woman equal. They are equal. They are the perfect complement to one another. And the two of them, in the matrimonial union, are made in the image and likeness of God. Remember, God is love. They are made in the very image of love itself. Love to pour out to one another, love for themselves, but love for all creation. Because what is the very first command that God gives to man and woman in marriage? To be fruitful, to, be mul- to multiply, to fill the face of the earth. So the very first command given to man by God is to be open to life. To hold nothing back between the spouses but to give themselves completely one to the other, to bring forth life. Do you guys um, remember the 80s at all? I was pretty young. But Star Trek, the original Star Trek crew were making movies, you know? And you remember the movie The Wrath of Khan? Okay? That was the episode of the movie where Spock died. You remember where... They ejected him in that capsule out into space, and he landed on that planet. And then Kirk got himself into some fight with some Klingon while the, the world was erupting because they had shot this photon torpedo thing into the planet with this technology they called Genesis. And it was designed to utterly transform barren planets into planets that had uh, lush forests and oceans and rivers and, and were teeming with life like Earth. And so, you know, Kirk is fighting off the enemy while that's happening, hoping he'll be beamed out in time, right? Remember that? Because this whole planet was just in utter chaos. Fire was erupting. And they, they, they pan back to the, to the spaceship, and you can see the planet and this wave just pouring over the planet as this fire starts to recreate this world into an Earth-like form. And behind it comes all that green stuff, comes the the, the atmosphere, the blue atmosphere and the oceans and all that life is just starting to come up and team and populate this planet right before our eyes. That's the image I want you to have when you sit and you think about this command that God gives to Adam and Eve to be fruitful and to multiply. 
You see, in sacred scripture, there's a pattern you need to follow. You're often given a problem. God will announce a problem. Immediately following the problem is his solution. So in Genesis chapter 1, the problem, the very first lines that we read are that the earth was both barren and void. It was tahu wabahu. It had no form and it had no inhabitants. So that was the problem. It was formless and void. So he immediately goes about fixing his problem. So he creates the forms, the ocean, the land, the sky. And then he goes about filling these forms with life, the birds and the fish and the beasts and man. So anytime you see a problem, you're given a solution. So then in in Genesis chapter 126, we're told to be fruitful, to to multiply, to fill the earth with life, to have dominion over this this creation. Adam and Eve were called to have dominion over all the beasts, over all the land. God formed the land and He created life. But the only cultivated land was the garden, the sanctuary where God lived with man. They abided with one another in perfect harmony because man was created without sin and he had perfect grace. So this is where they abided, this garden sanctuary. Adam is described in Genesis chapter 2.15 as a priest whose job it is to serve in this temple garden, to protect the garden and protect his spouse. So have that image in your mind of that planet from that movie sort of being recreated like that. That's sort of what Adam and Eve are called to do, to go out of this garden sanctuary into the wilderness and to cultivate the wilderness, to take the wilderness and make it that lush, living, abiding planet that we saw in that movie. They're to extend the boundaries of this garden sanctuary as priest, prophet, and king. If Adam is a king, Eve is a queen. The queen the mother, as Adam will call her in Genesis 3, of all the living. So this is the image I want you to have. This is what they were called to do. This is the command of God to the very first married couple, to be open to life, to hold nothing back from one another, to go forth. And in fact, we see in Genesis chapter 2, starting in verse 18 and following, that Adam had been created from the dust of the earth, and God breathed his ruah, his life, into Adam, creating the, the soul of Adam which definitely marks him to be different from all other created creatures. So you could have any amount of monkeys, zebras, any other kind of zoology you want. Adam is different because for the first time, he has a rational soul. That makes him different automatically. So God says, well, it's not good for man to be alone. And so he sends Adam on this task to name all the creatures. And so after naming all the creatures, it is discovered that there is no equal amongst all the created creatures, no equal to man. So what does God do? Remember what I said? He presents a problem. And so then he gives you the solution. The problem is man is alone and it's not good. So he puts Adam asleep. And from his side, he takes the rib and he forms woman. And then on the seventh day of creation, seven in scripture is a number of covenant perfection. We'll get to the significance of covenant in a minute. 
It's a number of covenant perfection. And on the seventh day, Adam wakes up. Genesis chapter 2, starting in verse 23. I'll back up to 21. So the Lord caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib which the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. So you automatically have this image of the father bringing his beloved daughter to what will be her husband. Kind of like my wife, whose father walked her down the aisle to me 12 years ago. He's no longer with us, so I kind of get choked up about that, but... But that's the image you have. The father bringing his beloved, precious daughter to his son. And the two are going to become one. He goes on to say, verse 23, Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Now, I give it that emphasis because you can almost hear that excitement. Imagine you're Adam. You just named every hairy beast, every disgusting creature that you've seen in all of creation, and you saw nothing that can compare to the glory of woman. I mean, the excitement. I mean, this must have been just, oh, wow, thank you, Lord. This is awesome. She is so glorious. Scott Hahn, one of my favorite authors, likes to tell this joke, which I'll steal from him. Adam one day was talking to God, and he said, God, I have a couple of questions for you. Sure, Adam, go ahead. God, why did you make Eve so beautiful? Oh, well, that's easy, Adam. That's so that you'd fall in love with her. What was your other question? Well, why did you make her so dumb? Oh, well, that's even easier, Adam, so that she would fall in love with you. It's supposed to emphasize how women truly are beautiful and gorgeous. And the gift of their femininity is a radiance of God himself. Remember what the catechism said. They are the perfect helpmate to man. They represent God's help to man. They are equals from the dawn of time. This is the image that we are given of marriage from the beginning. God is love. Man is made in God's image. So man is made for love. Paragraph 1642 of the Catechism of the Catholic Church says, In the joys of their love and family life, he gives them here on earth, God being, giving man and woman, a foretaste of the wedding feast of the Lamb. Your marriage, if you are married, is a foretaste of the glory to come in the beatific vision of all eternity. Now, you might be thinking, well, maybe not at my house. I mean, because, I mean, we're screaming at each other all the time. I mean, have you seen my kid's playroom? It's just totally chaos. I mean, there's no harmony. There's no peace. How could that be a foretaste? Blessed John Paul II, soon to be a saint, said this, God in his deepest mystery is not a solitude, but a family, since he has in himself fatherhood, sonship, and the essence of family, which is love. So as imperfect as our relationships actually are, they truly do point towards the greatness of God. We, as a married family, as a married couple, get to experience a tiny taste 
of the inner life of the Trinity, of who God is. What I do is Catholic evangelization, but it's not who I am. I am a son of the Most High God. I am a husband. I am a father. Who God is is Trinity. What God does is create, redeem, and sanctify. The family, man and wife, get to enjoy just a taste of that. The father pours out his love on his son. The son turns around and gives it all back out of pure love, holding nothing back, dying on the cross out of love for the rest of us and love for the father, pouring forth, proceeding, processing from this love of the father to the son and the son to the father from all eternity is the Holy Spirit, which is love. As deep, as hard as that might be, that's the basis of marriage. We're going to get into that more here in a minute. So marriage is a covenant, not a contract. What's a contract? A contract is an agreement between two parties for the sake of economy, the exchange of goods or services. You make a contract with your plumber. Should you make a contract with your wife or husband? Does it make any sense whatsoever? So should we be thinking of our marriages, or a marriage you may be discerning, in the sense of contract? No. Contracts can be broken. Contracts can become null and void. We don't have a contract. We have a covenant. What's a covenant? A covenant is the exchange of persons creating family. On the seventh day in Genesis chapter 2, we see a covenant between God and his creation and between Adam and Eve. Covenant. Seven is the covenant, is the perfection of the covenant number. Sheva. It's used all throughout the Old Testament to represent this. When Abraham made covenants with neighbors, they would Sheva themselves. They would seven themselves and they would do all kinds of sevening things. You see, you see it everywhere. Adam totally gave himself to Eve. He held nothing back. Eve gave herself totally to Adam. She held nothing back. God gives everything over to his creation. He holds nothing back. Prior to Genesis chapter 3, they live in a state of grace. There's no chance of abuse. There's no chance of lust and profanity. So they can be naked with one another. Eve has nothing to worry about, about her husband abusing her dignity, being a daughter of the Most High God, made in the image and likeness of God. Adam can walk freely amongst his wife and God, knowing that he will not succumb to the temptation to abuse his wife, not even in his mind. This is a state of grace. But of course, Genesis chapter 24 says, Therefore, a man leaves his father and his mother and cleaves to his wife, and they become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and not ashamed. The very next verse in sacred scripture, the very next line is, Now the serpent was more subtle than any other wild creature than the Lord God had made. 
What is the one flesh union that the sentence before talked about? It is the act of consummating the marriage. When man and woman become one flesh in the marital embrace. This is their most intimate moment. And this is when Satan comes on the scene. Isn't he doing it still today? Doesn't he attack us on our sexual morality every single day? The word subtle there, the Hebrew word for subtle, has a connotation of wisdom, but it also has a connotation of nakedness. It indicates that the kind of nakedness that this serpent brings to the table is completely different than the kind of nakedness that Adam and Eve enjoyed in the one flesh union, in walking in the garden in communion with God Himself. It is not the kind of nakedness Adam and Eve want. They don't want what this serpent is selling. It indicates that things are about to change in a massive way. And ultimately, because of time, I won't go into it, things change. They give themselves over. They decide and choose for themselves to disobey God. And they fall from grace. Sin enters mankind and utterly begins to eat away at salvation history, at mankind, at nature itself. All of creation is affected by sin. Your sin affects relationships. Why? Because the bedrock of mankind is in covenant marriage between each other and God. You can't, in the strictest sense of the word, commit a personal sin that has no bearing on anybody. You're in a room locked all by yourself. You commit a sin. How does that affect anybody else? Our sins affect nature itself. It utterly damages our relationships with every other human being. There is no such thing as personal sin. We are a family, and every sin affects that. So we see the fall of mankind. We see sin enter into salvation history, and we're going to see now the effects because Marriage is made to be between one man and one woman. It is made to be a total and complete gift of self to the other spouse, holding nothing back. You leave nothing on the table. You give it all. It's indissoluble. Just as God is indissoluble and forever, so is your marriage until death do you part. It's always open to life, being the very first command that mankind was given to go forth, to have children, and to take command of this earth, filling it full of life, because life comes from God, and it is good. But we see very quickly in salvation history how because of the fall of mankind, because of sin itself, things change rather poorly. In the Catechism of the Catholic Church, paragraph 1607, we read, Their relations, Adam and Eve, <clears throat> were distorted by mutual recriminations. Their mutual attraction, the Creator's own gift, changed into a relationship of domination and lust. And the beautiful vocation of man and woman to be fruitful, multiply, and subdue the earth was burdened by the pain of childbirth and the toil of work. Sin corrupts mankind. We read that <clears throat> once they fell from grace and they chose to disobey God, they realized, their eyes became opened and they realized they were naked and they were now ashamed. 
Well, they were just naked and unashamed just a few verses before. What's changed? Now, as the Catechism points out, because of sin, the possibility of abuse, of lust, of profanity, now is a very real situation for both of them. Eve must protect her dignity. Adam must protect not only his dignity, but hers too by averting his eyes. Lest he look upon her and lust upon her as if she is some sort of object to be consumed like a candy bar. She's not an object. She's a daughter of the Most High God to be truly loved and sacrificed for. It's a perversion of their understanding of, as human persons. So they hide in a bush out of shame and they cover themselves with leaves. Ultimately, after God encounters them, calling them out of the bushes, hearing their confession and giving them penance, one of the last things he does in Genesis chapter 3 is he kills an animal and makes them clothes of, of animal skins. Why? to restore their dignity. When you get a chance, read Luke chapter 15, the story of the prodigal son. Look what the father does when his wayward son comes begging in slave's rags. What does he do? He restores his son's dignity by clothing him again, restoring him to be a son of the father. That's how much God loves His children, that He would kill an animal. Sacrifice was now necessary. Blood had to be spilt to restore that dignity. Some scholars speculate, we have no idea, but it's kind of a fun speculation. The animal He killed, a lamb. Because as John's Gospel will tell us, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world is Jesus Christ. He will become our Lamb. He will be sacrificed for us on the cross to ultimately restore our dignity, taking us back to that grace-filled moment in Genesis chapter 2, before Genesis chapter 3. So you have to understand the effects of sin that have happened now in the garden. The very next chapter of Genesis, chapter 4, we read of a man named Lamech. I almost hate to bore you with all this detail, but it's very important. Chapter 4 begins with the son of Adam and Eve, Cain, killing his brother, Abel. Cain is then excommunicated from the family, put a mark on his head and sent out to wander. Cain is living in sin. He becomes very corrupted because of his sin. His offspring follow in his, his line, follow in his suit. You get to the seventh generation of Adam and Eve down the line of Cain, you come to a man named Lamech. Remember what I said about that number seven? It's the number of covenant perfection. So you get down the line of Cain to the seventh generation, you come to a man named Lamech. This is the very first time we are told or we hear anything about a man taking more than one wife. Polygamy enters mankind at this point. Why is it important that it's down on the seventh line, seventh generation of that line? Because Cain's line is an evil, corrupted line. So is polygamy good? 
No. This is an implicit rejection, an implicit judgment of the perversion of polygamy. Not only does he take more than one wife, but he's also, he's also prideful, arrogant, boastful, and he murders just like his ancestor Cain did. So there is no doubt in the reader's mind about what's going on. Polygamy is bad. The opposite way, back up to Cain again. <clears throat> when Cain kills Abel, Adam and Eve bear another son. His name is Seth. So now you have two lines. You have the line of Cain and you got the line of Seth. Cain's line is evil. They seek their own glory. They don't want God. They become the metal workers and the artisans and the craftsmen. Look at my work. I'm glorious, is what you're being told. And you get to that seventh line of Lamech, and he's really, really evil. He's the perfection of evil. You get down the seventh generation, the seventh generation down Seth's line, you come to a man named Enoch. Enoch is so holy, so righteous. He has only one wife. And he's so holy and so righteous that God doesn't even allow Enoch to die. He takes him. Just takes him up into heaven. He walks with God. That's the, the, the writer is trying to show you. He's trying to compare and contrast. He's showing you opposite ends. Look how bad this is compared to how good that is. Seth's line follows God. Seth's line seeks God. Seth's line wants to be righteous. It's Enoch's son Noah that will save mankind from the great flood. God doesn't decide to destroy the earth with the flood waters until the evil line of Cain corrupts the good line of Seth. The sons of Seth start to look at the, the daughters of Cain and they start to lust after them. And not only did they marry into the line, but it says they took as they pleased, which means they took multiple wives. Polygamy enters and corrupts the good line. It's at that point that God says, no more. And he brings, tells us the story of Noah and how Noah has his one wife and their sons have each of them one wife, right? So we see this the storyline of marriage wrapping itself through salvation history. And it becomes critical for us to see the sanctity of, the, of what will become the sacrament. So in the Old Testament, we see the perversion of marriage being carried out into polygamy. We also see, if you skip forward into salvation history, when Moses is sent by God, to pull the people, lead them up out of slavery, out of Egypt, and to lead them into the promised land. And for 40 years, they wander through the wilderness. Moses is encountering a stiff-necked people. Well, so is God. But Moses is the guy on the, with the boots on the ground who's got to deal with it. And ultimately, the people of God reject God, and they sin with the golden calf. And then Moses, in the book of Deuteronomy, because of the hardness of their hearts, allows divorce. He allows for divorce. Now, why is that? Have you ever seen the movie The Stoning of Sariah M? It's on Netflix. If you have Netflix, you can look it up. This movie is called The Stoning of Sariah M. It's actually a, a very 
hard movie to watch. It was like watching The Passion of the Christ with the intensity. In fact, Jim Caviezel is in this movie. He plays a reporter. It's a story about a woman in Iran whose husband doesn't want her anymore. He wants to marry someone else. So he decides, because she's a, she's a decent woman, you know, she's done nothing wrong. She's a good mom. She doesn't want a divorce. She wants her marriage to work out. Because he has this challenge he can't overcome, and he's a very selfish person, he cooks up a story about her having an adulterous relationship with another person in the village. He basically convinces all the village elders to, to go along. Well, they condemn her to death. And then they take her out, they prepare her, and they dig a hole in the ground up to her waist, and they bury her, and then all the village men, starting with her sons, stone her to death. It was so hard to watch. This is what's going on in the wilderness with Moses. We all have choices. We can choose to be righteous. We can choose to do good. It's not easy. And none of us do it perfectly. But God will give us what we need to do the job if we have the heart, a contrite, penitent heart. And we come to him for help. He'll give it. But they didn't do that. So they were abusing their women. And the catechism says, in order to protect these women, because the hardness of their hearts, Moses allows for divorce. So that's what's going on. So you have polygamy, you have abuse, divorce, perversion, corrupting the sanctity of this covenant relationship between Adam and Eve. Right? It was not meant to be that way. If we skip forward now to Christ, Mark chapter 10, starting in verse 2 and following, we read, And Pharisees came up and in order to test him, asked, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? He answered them, What did Moses command you? They said, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and to put her away. But Jesus said to them, For your hardness of heart, he wrote this commandment. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man put asunder. What God has joined together, let no man put asunder. Jesus takes us back to the garden. He takes us right back to that blissful moment between Adam and Eve when he first sees her and he just exclaims in great joy, Woman, bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. This is what's intended. And so Jesus elevates marriage from this covenant relationship to a sacrament, an encounter with Christ himself where grace is poured out. It's a beautiful thing. This is why the church stands on God's word, God's divinely inspired revelation through time and through the church that marriage is between one man and one woman. And it cannot be broken up for any reason if it's a valid marriage, if it's sacramental. 
Is that too hard of a burden? I've been married 12 years. And just yesterday, I was looking at our picture, our, our wedding picture on my phone, and uh, I was just thinking of how much we've had to endure through that time. You know, how many struggles we've had, how many pains we've had. You know, just of my wife having to deal with me and all my nonsense before I was even converted, let alone after, of trying to have children and trying to be good parents and being frustrated and, and, and just burdened with all of life and the finances and everything. So much goes into it. And a lot of times when you're selfish, you, you think you can, you're just going to pack up and quit. Does God give us too much of a burden to bear in total self-gift? From death do you part? The answer is no. The Catechism of the Catholic Church in paragraph 1615 says, quote, However, Jesus has not placed on spouses a burden impossible to bear or too heavy, heavier than the law of Moses. By coming to restore the original order of creation, disturbed by sin, he himself gives the strength and grace to live marriage in the new dimension of the reign of God. It is by following Christ, renouncing themselves, and taking up their crosses that the spouses will be able to receive the original meaning of marriage, and live it with the help of Christ. This grace of Christian marriage is a fruit of Christ's cross, the source of all Christian life. Total self-gift. You'll get the grace. God will give you the grace. He's not going to make it easy. He's going to make it possible. He's not going to make it so that you don't have to work. He expects you to work. That's what good families do. Imagine if I woke up some Saturday morning and I asked my son to get up out of bed and mow the lawn. Yeah, Dad, I believe you. I'm part of the family. I don't really need to work. I mean, would that fly? Of course not. No, no, son. You're getting up out of bed. You're going to mow that lawn. You're going to do it right now. No, no, Dad. I'm part of the family. You know, that's good enough. I don't really need to do anything. Families work for the good of the family. And because work is good when it's offered to God right? So work in your relationship, in your marriage, can be a real offering up. You know, we as baptized Christians, we serve a priestly role, not the same as the ministerial priesthood, but we serve a priestly role of self-sacrifice. As St. Paul says in Colossians 1.24, I fill up that which is lacking in the afflictions of Christ, for the sake of his body, which is the church. What's lacking in the afflictions of Christ? Us. And our willingness to offer our sacrifices up. Joining them to Christ on the cross. Giving us that opportunity to make our work mean something. Make our sacrifices mean something. Make our suffering mean something. Christ suffered, but unlike me, Christ never squandered his suffering. He always used his suffering for greater good. I, however, cry like a baby and always squander my suffering. I need to, I'm called to be more like Christ. And when my, my wife, when I get home tonight, says, put the kids to bed, go to the grocery store, I need to try to not complain about it, dig deep, and go to the store because my wife needs that from me. This is where spouses can witness Christ one to the other. The trick is the cross. 
Ephesians chapter 5, verses 21 through 33. This is the famous passage that gets some people really upset. It says, Be subject to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, be subject to your husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and, his, and is himself its Savior. As the church is subject to Christ, so let wives also be subject in everything to their husbands. If you stopped right there, you get a lot of upset women. What? What do you mean be subject to? Do you know that guy? He leaves his socks on the ground. He's terrible. He's this. He's that. Let's listen to the very next line. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish, even so, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. Oh, golly gee whiz, you ladies, you get just be subject to your husbands. That's all you get. Men, you get, you have to be subject to your wives and love your wives as Christ loved the church. And how did he love the church? He was nailed to a tree where for hours his lungs filled up with bodily fluids. And after having been scourged and beaten and dragged there, he was now forced to try to pull himself up on this cross, lean forward a little bit, just so that he could get a breath, just so that he could gasp for some words. And unlike the other people who would scream and, and yell out profanities, Christ used his effort and energy to breathe to yell, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. I thirst into your hands, I commit my spirit. Or even the one that I really love, behold your mother. He, he died from asphyxiation. That's agony. That's how much he loved his spouse. And that's what men are called to. So this passage is profound and deep. And it puts the burden upon men. To be not like Adam, who in a garden allowed his wife to be confronted by the enemy, by the serpent, the intruder, into his garden. She did all the talking. He did none of the talking. She had to defend herself because he refused to. Don't be like that coward. Be like Christ, the last Adam, who in a garden confronted with the cross. He didn't hide in a bush. When the horde comes out to arrest him, he goes to meet them. Who, do you, who are you looking for? Jesus of Nazareth. I am. That's who you're called to be like, men. You're called to sacrifice, to lay it all on the line, holding nothing back. Like Cortez in 1519, April 21st, who landed 11 Spanish galleons on the coast of the uh, Yucatan Peninsula. Now, the myth goes that he had his ships burned because... He knew he was up against a major fight, and he didn't want his men to retreat. In actuality, he didn't burn his ships. He scuttled them so they couldn't be used. Now, why would you do that? 
Because if you're, the, if you're the army who had just come off a major victory, you're kind of thinking, hey, man, who can touch us? We're awesome. So we're going to party a little more now. We're going we're gonna, to we're gonna enjoy the rewards of our labors. We're not really going to do the work it takes to get back into the game mentally and physically, knowing we're about to go up against a major enemy offensive so that we'll win. No. Super Bowl champions rarely ever win Super Bowls back-to-back. It does happen, but it's rare. Why? Complacency. If you lived your marriage that way, like that army, would you ever get divorced? You've burned your ships. There is no divorce. There is no retreat. But it's not working out. She's not doing everything she said she would do. She doesn't treat me like I need to be treated. She doesn't love me like I need to be treated. I deserve better. Heck, that, that secretary over there is better looking. She's younger. She's this. She's that. Why don't I deserve? God wants me to be happy. I deserve to be happy. Why can't I go be happy? We can come up with a thousand reasons. But I burn my ship. There is no retreat. I will die a married man to my one wife. Even if she leaves me, I will not retreat. Why? Because I said I do. She didn't force me. In fact, it's in the catechism. You can't be forced. It's not a valid marriage if someone puts a gun to your head. You have to give your yes. Just like Christ gave his yes on the cross. You give your yes, a free choice, a free consent to your spouse. The church witnesses this and then blesses it. Because it's witnessed, because it's a fundamental transformation of your state in life, It's done at Holy Mass. The church is witnessing this glorious moment when two people become one. This is far more important than to go and get married on a beach somewhere because it's pretty, because it's a good thing to do. God is love. Is love an emotion? It doesn't feel good today. It's kind of hard. She does not get along with me today. No, no. God is, God is love and He is not an emotion. And so love is a choice that we make every day. That's at the heart of the sacrament of matrimony. So again, marriage is the bedrock of society. It is indissoluble. It is between one man and one woman. It is open to life. It holds nothing back. You don't test drive marriage, you commit to marriage. It utterly transforms your state in life. You enter into an ecclesial communion with your spouse, witnessed and blessed by the church. God is love. We are called in His image to reflect that love to each other, to our communities, to the world. We are called to choose to do right, choose to love our spouses completely every single day until death do us part. And we become the domestic church. We become that place where we bear forth life, where we form those children, they form their consciences, their education, we prepare them to benefit society. 
This is why society has always been blessed by marriage between one man and one woman. So as much as this world wants to tear us down, we must stand strong because God is love. Amen? All right, thank you.